Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Okay, so if you don't know this about me or my family, we are total Disney people, okay? Like, that is, that is just who we are. Like, some of you guys, like, with your families, you save your money to buy a nicer car or a nicer house or to, like, send your kids to college. Like, I don't care about my kids' education. We save our money to go to Disney, okay? That's, that is just, that is our thing. It is what we do. But the very first time I went to Disney World, it wasn't as a little kid. I went as a teenager, and my parents had saved up money to take us on vacation. I was about 16 years old, and they rented a condo off, off site, and it had a pool. It was, it was a really sweet place, you know, bedrooms for everybody. And, uh, and we, we, made, we made the trip to Disney World. And I remember uh, going as a 16-year-old, never having really been before. I didn't really know any expectations, except that Disney is the happiest place on earth. So we pull up to the Magic Kingdom, and we, we went in. And, I mean, it was Disney World, and the rides were just there, and the characters were there, and, you know, Mickey Mouse. And, and here's, what was, here's what was crazy is I walked in, and I'm like, man, this is going to be incredible. The happiest place on earth. And I didn't feel the happiest I had ever been. It, in fact, it was kind of strange. I mean, I went in expecting it to be this just phenomenal, incredible, like, amazing, like, transformative experience. And for 16-year-old me, it just was kind of meh. In fact, this, now I'm going to confess something to you, and I, I still feel like guilty about this. You know, the, of the things that we carry with ourselves and feel guilty about, this is one of them. On the third day of our trip, uh, my family went back to the park, and I literally stayed at home in the condo by myself, and I watched movies. Like, that's how, like, okay, just stop and process that for a second. You take your teenager to Disney World, and then you get up, okay, it's time to go, and he's like, I'm just going to rent Die Hard instead and stay home. I mean, that was what I did. Because for me overall, like, I don't know why, but the trip, it just wasn't really what I expected it. And, like, it, how disappointing to go to what's supposed to be the happiest place on earth and to not really feel anything. And that was just my experience. And I think that for many Christians, a lot of followers of Jesus, I think some of us are familiar with that feeling. Because I think that there are those of us who call ourselves Christians who, who, who believe in the faith and believe in Jesus and, and, and take it very seriously and it's very important to us. And yet at the end of the day, we really don't feel much of anything. I think there's those of us who are followers of Jesus and, and, and the morality of the faith is important to us. And it's, it's a way to, to guide our, our moral decisions and our moral choices. But at the end of the day, if we had to describe it, we would probably say that we're living a fairly joyless Christianity. And, there, and he, I would even say there's probably those of us who, you know, maybe for us our faith is really important to us and, and we do a great job of hitting all the right marks, of, you know, we're being at church every time the doors are open and reading our Bible and praying and doing all of the things that religious people are supposed to do and doing those things well, and yet we probably describe our faith as maybe a little unsatisfying. And then maybe there's those of us who, who we aren't great at hitting all the religious marks, and that's the problem is that I really want to, I want to be a good Christian and I want to be a good follower of Jesus, but I keep screwing up and I keep, you know, I, have, I can't shake the habits, you know, of my past or the attitudes, the things that just keep messing me up in life, and, and I just, I feel like a failure all the time. And feeling like a failure is never fun, and as a result... I'm a follower of Jesus, but I just feel kind of crappy about it. And it's not terribly satisfying or joyful or, or wonderful. 
And so for some of us, I think that we live this kind of semi-hollow, semi-empty Christianity. This faith that is, it's good, but it's not satisfying. This faith that's a good guide, but it's not joyful. And I think that for many of us, there's this fundamental ingredient. I think there's this fundamental piece that for many of us is missing from our relationship with Jesus. And whether we love our faith and feel great about it, or whether we're really struggling to find meaning and purpose in it, I think for a lot of us there's a fundamental problem in our relationship with God that comes from a lack of understanding of this key thing that sets that relationship with God up. And that thing that I think many of us don't really understand fully is grace. Grace. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. So grace is, this grace is the foundational, fundamental, key element to everything in our relationship with God. Because how are we saved? Grace. It's grace. But we don't understand it. We don't grasp it. And we, many of us have a working definition of it. And, and that definition often sounds like this. It's that grace is this unmerited, undeserved favor from God. Right? It's, it's this gift. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. There's nothing that I could do to earn God's favor or to earn his love or to earn his acceptance. It's this gift that he gives us. And I get that in my head. I have this understanding of what grace is in my mind. But if I'm being totally honest, the, the trip from my mind to my heart, it, that grace never really makes that connection. Because I can grasp it here, but I don't know that I ever really feel it. I don't know that I ever really feel like I don't have to deserve God's affection or that, that I don't have to earn God's favor because deep down there's still part of me that feels like I have to be good enough. I have to be uh, religious enough or I have to do the right things and if I don't, I'm not worthy. And if I don't, I don't deserve what God has given me. Or maybe there's those of us who feel like we're doing pretty good but even when I hit the mark, it's like, Great, I just get a star on my shirt, but that's, that's not satisfying, and that's not enough. But an understanding of grace, God's grace. We even sing the song, Amazing Grace, right? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And like, we all know those words. I mean, people aren't even followers. Of, maybe you're, here, you're not a follower of Jesus today. You know the words to Amazing Grace because you probably heard it sung at like 50,000 American Idol auditions. You know what I'm saying? We know the words, how sweet the sound, but it's like, I don't know if many of us really like know how sweet the sound of grace is. And it's like, yeah, I mean, grace is a thing, but it doesn't sound that sweet. I don't, I don't really grasp, I don't feel it, I don't know this experience. And I want, I want you to know, I want us to know as a church, I want us to understand grace. I want you to know that grace is bigger than you could ever possibly imagine that it was. I want you to know that grace is, is wilder and, and vaster and, and more profound than anything that you could have possibly hoped or imagined. And that grace, when we understand what it is and when we see it the way that God intends for us to see it, is so transformative, so freeing, that it can transform and change everything about your life. Grace, it's bigger than our doubts, it's bigger than our fears, it's bigger than our anxieties, it's stronger than our weaknesses, it's stronger than our problems. That grace, the fundamental and foundational thing 
that allows us to have a relationship with a living and loving God is freer than we could ever possibly believe it or have imagined it to be. And when we get to grace, when we get to real grace, it sets our souls free. And that's my heart. Because whether you're a follower of Jesus in this place or whether you're not, maybe you're not a Bible person or Christian, my hope and my desire for each and every single one of us is this, is that we live a life of freedom. I know that's God's desire for us, is that we live a life of freedom and of life. And it starts with grace. Now, to to understand this, over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about grace. And and to understand it, we really need to to go to the person who probably is the biggest proponent of grace. And that's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And uh, and there was no bigger advocate uh, for grace. There's nobody who believed in it, who experienced it more than the Apostle Paul in the first century. And, And I think... His experience with grace is something that every single one of us can also experience in our lives today. But to do that, we need to look at Paul's first experience and his first encounter with grace. And so to do that, we need to know a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul was a religious Jew. Uh, Man, he was just like, he called himself a Jew of Jews. Now, I don't know if that's like a super politically correct thing to call yourself anymore, but like, that's how he described himself. He was a religious guy. He was all about the faith. He He was so passionate about Judaism that when Christianity starts to spring up, when this, when this Jesus kind of comes up and he's challenging some of the Jewish traditions and the Jewish teachings, like people like Paul hated him. They hated him so much that, that they ended up getting him crucified and murdered. And then after Jesus died and, and these, these followers of Jesus were teaching that he was still alive, that he was raised from the dead and were still, you know, this Christianity was starting to spread. They wanted to do everything that they possibly could to stomp out Christianity. And Paul was one of those guys. In fact, there was, there was a follower of Jesus named Stephen and a bunch, of, a bunch of religious Jews captured Stephen and they tried to get him to deny Christ and he wouldn't do it. And so they literally threw rocks at him until he died just hitting him in the face and in the body with rocks, crushing his skull until he was dead. And Paul, this is what it says about Paul in in Acts chapter 8. They called him Saul at the time. Just so you know, Paul was kind of the Greek uh, way of saying his name. Saul would have been the Hebrew, the Jewish way of saying his name. So we see that Saul was one of the witnesses to Stephen's death. And he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. So that Saul literally stood and held people's coats when a dude was like, here, let me pick up a rock and murder this guy. Here, hold my coat. Paul was like, here, I'm on it. You know, that was Paul. And that was he, that's what he was all about. So let's describe Paul. Let's really understand this guy for a second. Paul was a religious fundamentalist. And he believed in using violence and torture and imprisonment to both protect and to enforce his faith wherever he was at. You know what that means? That means that like in our day, that Paul was, he was a terrorist. Paul was ISIS. He, he was Al-Qaeda. Paul was the Taliban. Paul was a religious fundamentalist who was willing to kill you if you challenged his religion. He was willing to murder you and put you in prison if you came up against what he believed. In fact, look at what Acts chapter 9 says about Paul. The beginning of this kind of story where Paul encounters grace for the first time. It says that, that Saul was uttering threats with every breath and he was eager 
to kill the Lord's followers. The dude was eager to murder people because they didn't believe in the faith that he believed in. That like if Paul was here today, that Paul would be like ISIS. Paul would be on the internet and on Twitter and he would be spewing his, his, both his beliefs and his defense of those beliefs and advocating the murder and the torture and the imprisonment of people who didn't believe those things. The story continues that so, so Saul went to the high priests of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. And he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way, which is Christianity, that he found there. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So Christianity springs up in Jerusalem, which is kind of the center of the Jewish faith. It's kind of the home of the Jewish faith. But it wasn't enough for Paul to stomp out Christianity just there. So Paul's like, hey, lead priest, can you just give me a letter of introduction just all over the place so I can go murder and arrest Christians everywhere? He's like, I just want to take them out. And I, lo I love how the writer of Acts wants us to understand how intense and how serious and how merciless Paul really was in this pursuit. Because he tells us that Paul wanted to bring both men and women back to Jerusalem in chains. Paul just didn't want to arrest men. And we were in a, a man-centered society, right? Women were kind of expendable in Jewish culture. They weren't really seen. The man was everything, but, but not if they were Christians to Paul. Paul wanted to arrest both men and women. That's how merciless he was. Paul was willing to take a father and a mother away from their children to arrest them and throw them in chains because they were followers of Jesus. That's how horrible and how violent and how merciless a terrorist Paul actually was. Continues, as he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I want us, as we, just do me this favor, as we're reading this story, let's like put aside like the Sunday school like perspective, all right? Like, let's, let's not read this like kids in a Sunday school class. No, this is not a Bible story. I want you to, to hear this as what it was, as Paul actually telling the story of what happened to him to other people, okay? Because we know this, Paul was a terrorist. Paul was willing to go to extreme lengths to stomp out Christianity, but then something happened, and Paul became one of the greatest proponents of Christianity to the point that he was willing to take the torture, the abuse, and the imprisonment that he was meeting out on people onto himself. So something happened to this real historical person. And this is what Paul is saying happened to him. That he was going to Damascus to arrest people and this light appeared to him and this voice says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And the voice says this, it says, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This is what's crazy. So like Paul sees this light, this voice speaks to him. And the men with Saul stood speechless because they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they didn't see anyone. So like this experience happens to Paul and the guys who are with him, it, like they're on the outskirts of this. Like Saul's having this light shine in his face, but these guys hear this voice. They hear what this voice is saying to him. This is what happens. So Saul picks him up, picks himself up off the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he was blind. And so his companions, the guys who are with him, they led him by the hand to Damascus and he remained there blind for three days and he didn't eat or drink. Now, for those of us who've been in church for a long time, we've heard this story before, and we've always heard it described as, as Paul's conversion, right? This was his conversion on the road to Damascus. And can I just tell you that, like, what happens here, this is not conversion. 
okay? This is not a conversion experience. This is a step in Paul's conversion experience. But, like, let's just really understand what this is according to Paul in his own words, okay? Paul had been torturing Christians trying to stomp out this faith in Jesus. And while he's on his way to do that, this figure of this person who he thought was dead supernaturally appeared to him. And not only did that figure supernaturally appear to Paul, but he's called out by this person for persecuting his followers. And not only is he called out by this person, then he's commanded by this figure who has appeared to him supernaturally and he's speaking to him. He's commanded to go into the city to do something. And then on top of everything else, at the end of this, he's blinded by this person. Okay, now let's like think about this from Paul's perspective. This is not like, oh, this was God appearing to me. Now I'm going to be your follower. If you are Paul, if you've been a terrorist, you've been murdering people who've been following this person. You've been, you've been imprisoning them, breaking up their families, putting them in jail and torturing these things. If I'm Paul and I'm putting all of these things together, I think one thing, and that's this revenge. Like, I screwed up. (laughs) I screwed up. And now I'm going to be punished. This is my retribution. I was wrong about Jesus. I was wrong about this stuff. I I tortured these people. I screwed up. I arrested. I put these prison people in prison. I killed his followers. And now he's coming after me. And I'm caught and I'm busted. And rightly so, right? I mean, Paul was a terrorist. If it was well, I mean, imagine what you would do if a religious fundamentalist or a white supremacist came and killed and tortured your people. How would you feel? I mean, it'd be like, you know, it's Patriot Missile time, right? I mean, we, we'd be like, we're, it's going to blow somebody up, right? If a terrorist messes with my people, it's time to pay. It's time to be punished. And Paul, I mean, Paul grew up in a Jewish culture where their culture was an eye for an eye culture. That's what they were taught. Like, if someone hurts you, you hurt them, an eye for an eye. And so Paul, like, in this moment, what could he possibly, the only thing he could possibly expect is this bill is coming due. And he knew that it was time for retribution. He knew that it was time for punishment. And, and honestly, like, for us, it's no surprise that there are those of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, who when you think about God, and when you think about either your relationship with him or you think about that if there's a God, what would he expect or what, if, what would he want from me? It's no surprise that there are those of us who would expect or anticipate punishment. If there's a, a perfect God who set a perfect standard for us to live, there's no way I've met that standard. I mean, and as a follower of Jesus, I know just from looking at, you know, God's expectations from the Bible, I've, there's, I've not met that standard. It's impossible. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a Christian. You're not a Bible person. You take the standard of the Bible out. Use your own standard. What what are your standards for right living? You know that you violated your own standards. You know that you haven't lived up to your own standards. And so if there's a perfect God and, and he wants a relationship with us and I violated his standards, like all I could possibly expect is punishment. Even those of us who are followers of Jesus, I've been a Christian a long time, and I know that God loves me, and I know that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin, but I I screwed up, and I feel guilty, and I feel shame, and I feel regret, because deep down, I, I know that, like, I should be punished. 
And maybe, maybe for you, it's like, maybe you don't struggle with the fact that you think God wants to punish you, but when you look at yourself in the mirror, you know that you deserve to be punished. At least you think that you should be punished. And so you carry shame and regret. And why not? I mean, like, Paul was a terrorist, but at the end of the day, we've all lived a life at some, in some way where we've hurt someone or we've violated someone else's trust or we've, we've, we've broken some standard that either God has set or that we've set for ourselves. And we know deep down, or at least feel deep down, that God has to be angry with us. That there's no way that God can't be disappointed in me. There's no way that God can't be angry with me. And at the very least, you know, even if God loves me, there's just, there's no way that he could really accept me after what I've done. After where I've been. Because I can't even accept myself. How could God possibly accept me? So Paul's blinded on the side of the road thinking that this is his punishment, that his bill has finally come due. And this is what happens. There is a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision. And he called out to him, and God said this to him. He says, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. And I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. And this is, this is interesting. Look at Ananias' response. But Lord... I've heard many people talk about the terrible things that this man has done to, to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who's called on your name. God, uh, he appears to Ananias. He's like, I want you to go and I want you to go to this Paul guy. And Ananias is like, but dude, that guy's a terrorist. He's killing people. He's authorized to do it by the leading priests. It's like, I'm not going to this dude. His reputation is preceding him. God, don't make me go talk to this guy. And here's what's interesting is that like, I don't know if what's motivating Ananias is fear. It could be that Ananias is like, God, I, he could arrest and torture me. Why would I do that? Or if on the other side of things, and this, I could probably relate to this a little bit more, if Ananias is like, okay, God, I know you want to do something in this guy's life, but he doesn't deserve it. I mean, that dude's killing our people. He's arresting my people, your people. And this is what's interesting. Look at, look at what... Uh, Look at what God says to Ananias. He says, I want you to go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And in God's response right here, we begin to see grace unfold. And in God's response to Ananias, we begin to see God's heart for grace, God's heart towards Paul, and God's heart of grace towards us begin to unfold. And there's three things that we begin to see happen in Paul's life, and three things that happen in our lives that will happen for us because of grace. Because of God's grace. And the first thing that we see is this, is that because of God's grace, God doesn't just see who you are but he sees who you can still become. Because of God's grace, he doesn't just see who you are, he still sees who you can become. And look at, look at Paul. I mean, Paul was, Paul was a terrorist, and he, the end of Paul's terrorism had arrived. God's judgment had fallen on him. He'd been blinded. He was dealt with. It was over. 
All the Christians were like, yay, God, you did it. And Paul has moved off the board. We're done with him. Let's move on. And who's the next hero of the Christian faith who can stand up as Paul, the enemy of the Christian faith, goes down in history as some loser who God kicked his butt? But God says, "Uh uh-uh. I don't just see him for who he is and what he is right now. God says, I see him for what he can still become. I still see this person who's the worst of the worst to me and my people. I still see this person who has done things that everyone else would say are absolutely unforgivable. And I still see value in him because I see what he can become. And I see someone who destroyed, who's trying to destroy the faith. And I see him as the person who's actually going to be the pillar and the foundation of what I want to build in this church that I'm beginning right now. And it's the same for you. You see, when God looks at you, he doesn't just see where you are, and he doesn't just see what you are right now. You are not just the culmination of the choices and the mistakes and the decisions that you have made in your life up to this point. You are not just the, you are not the sum of all of your regrets sitting here in this seat today. You may see that. But God sees beyond that. God sees what you can still become. And it's bigger and it's greater than you could possibly imagine because that's grace. That's God's grace. God's grace sees so much bigger and so much farther than, you, than your mistakes, than your sin, than your broken relationships, than all of the trail of things in your past that you never want anyone to find out about, that you would be just ashamed if anyone read them in your diary. You are so much more than that because, because of God's grace. God sees not just who you are and what you are right now, but God sees what you can still become. That's grace. Check this out. So Ananias, he does what God says. And he went and he found Saul. And he laid his hands on him. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a couple really cool things that happen in this, right? Ananias shows up to where Saul was. And what is the first word that he says to Saul? What is the first word that he says to the enemy of the Christian faith, to this terrorist who's been murdering, arresting, and torturing Ananias' people? He says, brother. And now this is the second thing about grace that is for you today. It's because of God's grace, you belong when everything says that you shouldn't. You see, everything said that Saul could never belong to the followers of Jesus. That Saul would never have a place in the church because of the things he'd done. They were unforgivable. Nobody could get past those things. Nobody could see beyond those things. It was impossible. There's no way that Paul could ever possibly belong. But because of grace, you belong even when you shouldn't. And God looks at you and he says, your family. Saul, listen, Saul had never gone through like a Christianity 101, right? Saul had never like apologized. We, I mean, do we see Paul apologizing and saying, I screwed up, I was wrong, I want to take it all back? We don't see any of that. We don't see Paul saying, you know what, I, I, I screwed up, but now I believe in these, you know, fundamental doctrines. And now that I've gone through this course and I'm, I'm making a public assent and I'm going to sign on this contract saying that I now believe these things. None of that stuff ever happened, And yet, Paul, in his most sinful, most judged, most evil and wicked state 
according to God, because of grace, is seen as family, that he belongs. You belong. You belong in God's family. God looks at you, and he doesn't see someone who he's angry at, who he's disgusted at. He doesn't see someone who um, is, is, he doesn't see someone who could never live up to his standards. You know what God looks at when he sees you? He sees a, potentially, a potential family member. He sees a potential son, a potential daughter. He sees someone who has the potential to be welcomed into his home. In fact, he sees someone who he wants to invite into his home. He sees someone who he's inviting into his home. He's just waiting for you to say yes. Brother, sister, you belong. And not only that, I mean, it's not only this, this sense of belonging that comes from calling him the brother, but, but he says, he says that, that he that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's not just God's people saying, you know what, you're welcome, come on in. We'll work out the kinks. You know, eventually we'll work out your issues and then eventually God will accept you. Because it wasn't about God's people saying, come in and then eventually God will accept you. He says that God filled him with his Holy Spirit. In that moment. Before Paul knew anything about Jesus' teaching, why would, why would Paul know anything about the complete teachings of Jesus so that he could agree with all of those things. He was trying to wipe Christianity out. All that Paul had in that moment was an encounter with God's grace. And because of that, he belonged even when he shouldn't. And then finally, look at this. It says that instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. And then he got up and was baptized. So, these, so Paul's blinded. This, it was literally judgment from God. In fact, back then, good religious Jews believed this, that if you were sick or you had a disease or you were crippled, that it was, it was a sign that you were a sinner, that it was punishment from God, eye for an eye. There was no way that Paul saw his blindness as anything other than judgment from God. Rightly so, deserved judgment from God. And yet in that moment, that Ananias calls him brother, says you have a place with us, lays his hands on him and prays with him, the scales of blindness, literally like contact lenses, fall off of Paul's eyes, and Paul can see again. And the reason that happens is because of this. And this is the third thing, that because of God's grace, judgment falls away. God's judgment on Paul, what Paul would have perceived as his punishment, as his rightly deserved judgment, something that everyone else would have said he deserved to live with forever because of all of the things he'd done. He tortured people. He arrested people. He deserves to be blind forever. He deserves this judgment from God. Paul might have looked at himself and said, I do, I deserve it. I feel terrible for the things I've done. I deserve this judgment. But because of God's grace, judgment falls away. And you may have walked through your life and you may feel like you are just under this cloud of judgment. And you may feel like you deserve it. And you may feel like everyone who looks at you, who knows what you've done or knows anything about your life, thinks that you deserve that judgment. And how could God possibly not think that you deserve to be under that judgment too after what you've done? But because of grace, Judgment falls away. You see, judgment is not a word that is in God's vocabulary with people who are under his grace anymore. 
that when God extends his grace to you, when he invites you to be part of his family, when he sees a future for you that you couldn't see yourself, when he extends that invitation to you and when you accept it, judgment is no longer involved in the relationship at all. It falls away. It's gone. And the challenge, the problem is, is that even as Christians, we walk under the sense of, of, of shame and guilt and, and expectation of this judgment that's going to come from God. And, and, and not only that, but we have been wired to look at the bad things that happen in our life as judgment from God. We're wired to look at the loss of a loved one or a sickness in our family or in ourselves or the loss of a job. We're wired to look at these things and say, I must not be good enough. I must deserve God's judgment if these things are happening to me. And that couldn't be any farther from the truth. Because of God's grace, judgment is gone. It's not part of the equation of your relationship with him anymore once you say yes to him. His desire is not to judge you, but to welcome you in. And when judgment is, falls away, it's replaced with this new perspective on life. It's replaced with a new way of seeing the world. And it's the way of grace. Grace says that God's ultimate goal for you isn't punishment, but that God's ultimate goal for you is redemption. Grace says that it's not judgment, but it's now healing. Grace says that it's not about revenge, but it's about complete and total forgiveness. Grace says that it's not about rejection, but it's about total and complete acceptance to God and to his family. Because grace says this. Grace says that God's not surprised by your failures. Did you know that like you know that you didn't surprise God, that God wasn't watching you tool along, tool along in your life and he wasn't like, oh shoot, boy, they screwed that one up. I gotta, I gotta take a step back from this. Grace says God knew and that God knows how bad you messed up and how bad you will mess up. But that he loves you enough to keep inviting you in. Grace says that God isn't surprised by your failures. And grace says that God is committed to sticking with you all the way through to your complete transformation. That it's a process. That there's no point along the way at which you're going to keep screwing up and God's going to say, well, I did my best. Or God's going to say, you know what? I was with them, but I just can't do this anymore. I'm out. That grace says God will never leave you or forsake you. He will never abandon you. That he's with you through to the end. Grace says this, that when you fail, that you don't have to start again from zero. And there's so many of us who walk away from God because we keep screwing up. And we think, you know what? If someone screwed up on me this many times, I just couldn't. I couldn't deal with it anymore. It just hurts too much and I would have to put them out of my life. And we think that if I would do that, then God must be the same. And it's not true. Because of grace, you never have to start again at the beginning. You never have to, have to you know, come begging and pleading on your hands and knees, you know, in shame and guilt and regret to God. But that God welcomes you right back to the path because of his grace. And he says, it's okay. Judgment is gone because of my grace. Because of what Jesus did, you are now mine. Let's keep stepping forward. I'd never abandon you. I would never give up on you because of grace. Because of grace, no one will love you as much as God does, ever. And God will never stop loving you. Because of grace, God loves you as much on your worst day as he loves you on your best. 
that because of grace, on the days where you are hitting 100 and you are the best person living the best life that you've ever lived, that God loves you just as much on the day where you violated your relationship with him in the worst way possible as he did on that best day, that he didn't stop loving you and he will never stop loving you and he will never give up on you and he will never heap his judgment on you because of his grace. And followers of Jesus, that's what we live under. Because it's because of grace that we were saved. Not because of guilt, not because we worked hard, not because we earned it, but because of grace. Not because of judgment, not because of punishment, but because of grace. Can you feel the weight that can lift off your shoulders when you know that you don't have to judge yourself anymore, that you don't have to feel the the weight of other people's judgment, even if it's imaginary anymore, that you don't have to sit here and believe that God is angry at you anymore because he's not. Because when you said yes to Jesus, you became a creature of grace. God's grace is available to each and every single one of us every single day of our lives, there is a grace for you. Are you living a life of shame and guilt? There's a grace for you. Are you living a life of legalism where you feel like you need to earn God's grace and need to earn God's acceptance? There's a grace for you. Are you like me where like you can understand God's grace in your mind, but it never really translates to your heart where you can like feel God's love. And it's like, I know that I need to, it's a great moral life but I just don't necessarily feel it emotionally. There is a grace for you. Whatever your circumstance, your situation, whatever you are facing, Christian, there is a grace for you. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, can I tell you the biggest and best grace is ready for you because it's it's Jesus extending his hand out to you. Doesn't matter how big of an enemy you are to him. And he's saying, brother, sister, you are invited into this grace. And it is for you. You can step out of judgment and you can step fully and completely into total love, total acceptance, into a future that I have for you, into a family that I have for you. Because it doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter where you are, and it doesn't matter where you are headed. God's grace is for you. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that it is is unmerited and undeserved and that it is free. And I thank you, Lord, that that it is available to each and every single one of us. And so Lord, I just, I pray God with my brothers and sisters here today. God, I ask you to help me to understand what your grace really means for me. That God, I don't have to walk in judgment, that I don't have to walk in shame and in guilt. And I don't have to walk in the sense that you are angry or displeased with me because God, because of grace, you are perfectly pleased with me as your son, as your daughter, as your child. Lord, because of your grace, my soul can be set free in you. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to let go of the judgment that we place on ourselves. God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, that when we can't accept ourselves to believe and to understand that you accept us and to be able to walk in that as well. Father, I pray that you would help us to let go of the shame of our past, the regret of the mistakes and the sins that we have made, Lord, in our histories, to be able to walk out of those things and to step into the grace that you have for us, knowing knowing, God, that you see a future for us of what we can still become in your grace. And it's a future that's hopeful and full of life. 
that we don't have to live a joyless Christianity anymore, God, but that we can walk in a relationship with you that is satisfying, that is full, and that is free, and that doesn't come with any of the baggage of judgment because of your grace. And Lord, I pray with those who aren't followers of Jesus today, God, who are hearing this, God, and and in their hearts, they know that that this is something, a grace that they need for themselves. God, I pray with them. God, I pray that you would forgive me. God, I just, I present myself to you, Lord. And I know, God, that I have been under your judgment because I've just put myself there with my life. And I ask that you would take my life and that you'd accept me, Jesus, and that you would move me from judgment to grace. Because I believe that it doesn't matter where I've been and what I've done because, Jesus, you made a way for me to be right with you. And I ask that your grace cover me as I say yes to you today. Lord, I love you and I thank you. I pray it all in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.